So I'm delighted to be back with you. It's good to see all of you. Thanks so much for being here as a part of this. What I'd like to do specifically at the beginning of life is say a little bit about uh, the ethics of all of these reproductive technologies that 30 years ago were brand new and now are mainstream in medical practice. What I've discovered, though, over those last 30 years is that our, the people in our pews are just as uneducated about the ethics of these treatments as they were 30 years ago. You could attend, I think you could attend, mo, you, you, could, you could sit in on most of the churches that are represented by people in this room and go for a very long time without our people hearing anything about all of these wild and outside-the-box ways to conceive children today. And statistically, the, the stats on this have held pretty steady for the last couple of decades. Roughly one in six couples of childbearing age are technically infertile, which means they're in our pews. And, and let me tell you, they are, they are in pain in our pews. My wife, my wife and I were one of these couples that needed the truth about fertility to be told to us. Uh, we had a roughly four-year journey with infertility that were by far the four most painful years of our married life together. I can see some of you nodding your heads. You, 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 it sounds like you've been down that road and you know that drill. Um, so we, we got just a few minutes. I'm going to dig a little deeper into some of these things in the workshop this afternoon. Uh, but I want to address just a handful of things which I think are the, the, the most pressing areas of conversation that have to do with uh, just sort of sorting through what the Bible teaches about all of these wild new ways to procreate children. So let me, just, let me first address the, the pastoral side of things. Um, so you, you have a couple who comes to you for counsel, let's say they've been trying unsuccessfully for the last two or three years to conceive a child. Well, what, what advice would you give to them? How would you address them more pastorally and spiritually, not suggesting that you know, all, all of us need to be experts on the ethics of this, but at least I think we need to, we need to have some sort of grasp of the, the pastoral dimension of this. Um, so think about uh, what I, what I want to make sure we, we're, we're clear on. It just, just, and we'll go into more depth on this this afternoon. Uh, but to be careful not to underestimate the degree of pain that infertility causes for couples. Because for most couples, after you know, most couples I think come into marriage thinking that you know they'll they'll try for a few months and hit the jackpot and they'll be pregnant and all you know, life will go on swimmingly. In reality, that's rarely the case. Most couples take from six to nine months to conceive for their first time. And an infertility specialist won't see you until you've been trying for 12 months consecutively. That's a long time for people to be wondering, what on earth is going on here? So be careful not to understate or underestimate the pain that they feel, because for most couples, Infertility is the loss of a very, very significant dream for them. And as much as we wish it were not true, adoption is considered a far less than option 
even though the Bible has, I think, the, some of the strongest affirmations of adoption because it's the primary figure of speech which describes our relationship to God. I had a couple that I had lunch with not long ago that said, uh, we, we can't have kids. Don't talk to me about adoption. It's off the table. And I thought, seriously? Have, have you read the New Testament lately? about how God views adoption. Uh, but, for, but for most couples, it's still considered something that's just not quite as good. The other thing I think just to be careful about, we'll say more about this this afternoon too, is be careful about giving unsolicited advice to infertile couples. I can't tell you how many times in the four-year journey my wife and I had, had that we got well-meaning but entirely clueless advice from our, from our friends who at the time, I'll be honest, they were multiplying like rabbits at the time. And we were not. And, my, and just be aware that Mother's Day and Father's Day are the two worst days of the year for infertile couples. And please, however you celebrate Mother's and Father's Day in your church, do something that recognizes that those two days are not picnics for everybody. For a variety of reasons, infertility being one of them. Now, we'll put the we'll put the pastoral stuff aside just for the moment. I want to deal with what I think are the three most pressing ethical issues that have to do with infertility. The first of these, let's just let's just lay a foundation here. I, I am not of the view that all medical interventions into infertility should be off the table. Because God, in Genesis 1 and 2, gave human beings the dominion mandate to rule over creation. We're we're to be responsible stewards. And God, by virtue of general revelation and common grace, invested, invested his wisdom into creation and gave human beings the tools to unlock that. But the impact of the entrance of sin was really significant on that. It clouded the lenses through which we see God's wisdom in the world. It also clouded our lenses through which we see God's wisdom in his word as well. And the entrance, the general entrance of sin introduced disease, death, and decay into the world that Adam and Eve didn't know prior to that. And I would, t- I would, in my view, infertility is one of the effects of the general entrance of sin into the world. Now, be, be, be really clear about that. I am not suggesting that it is, a, it is a result of any personal sin. That's, that's, a, that's a really crucial distinction to make. But the, it is the result of the general entrance of sin. It is not the way God intended. And therefore within limits, within boundaries, it is, it's appropriate to use some medical interventions to alleviate infertility. And I think some, there, there are actually some medical interventions that I think are okay to do and then run around infertility, as most of these technologies do. They, most of the technologies that are employed today don't heal anything. They do an end run around the problem. And we do that in medicine consistently. Any, any of you who have had kidney dialysis, now that doesn't fix anything. It's an end run 
around failing kidneys. And there are lots of other medical treatments that do the same thing. So here, what I would consider to be the primary theological parameters that govern our view of, of reproductive technology and procreation. One is the sanctity of marriage. That as, as God designed procreation to take place within the confines of permanent monogamous heterosexual marriage. Second, that life is sacred from conception onward, which means we have to take seriously what happens to the embryos that are created in the lab during in vitro fertilization, for example. The, the, we have a mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. We also have a mandate to rescue the vulnerable, okay, which I think has, some, has something to do with adoption being a fundamental good because it's a metaphor for our relationship to God. And I would say technology here is a qualified good. It's a good, but within limits. And that it, that's to say that not everything we can do is something that we ought to do in, in terms of techno technology. And finally, the Bible has, a, I, think, I think, portrays a continuity between marriage, procreation, and parenthood. That the ideal in the scripture is for a, a married couple to procreate children together and to be responsible for whatever procreative activity they engage in and whatever results from that in terms of parenting. Now, assuming, that, of course, that they're not unfit. And we have, we have ways, I think, to deal with that, that will take a child and place him or her with a couple who is fit to parent them in the event that the couple is not. All right, so let's, let's be a little more specific. I think the, the primary infertility treatment that's in use today is in vitro fertilization. Uh, in fact, I think it's in, unless, you know, unless you have a relatively easy fix uh, for whatever, whatever is causing the problem within in infertility, most clinics go, will almost default to in vitro fertilization. Uh, the, I think one of the reasons they have to do this has to do with the cost. Uh, and let's, I think, let's disabuse ourselves of the notion that infertility clinics are charities for the benefit of infertile couples. That's not true. Infertility clinics are very big business, and that's how they run. And so I, I would strongly encourage the couples that you deal with who are going down this road that if they don't like the way their values are being respected, if they don't like their be, the way they're being treated, I, I say take their ball and go home and take, take their business to another place that, will, will, that will, will do what they want to be done within the moral and ethical boundaries that the couple has set. Because they're the ones who are, they are the paying customers. They are the ones calling the shots. In my view, there is nothing morally problematic with conception occurring outside the body. This is what I think, God bless our Catholic brothers and sisters, but I think they, I don't think they have gotten this quite right. Uh, now, there are other issues that have to do with in vitro fertilization that the couples you deal with need to be told about this in advance. I mean, if I had a dollar for every couple who came to me after the horse was out of the barn, 
and say, now, we didn't think about this beforehand, but here's what we're facing. What do we do? And I say, I, you know, I wish we'd had this conversation three months ago before you had gone down this road. The trickiest, I think, of all of these is what happens not when IVF is a failure, but when it's a success. Most of the time, when IVF is a success, the couple that's, that's engaged in the, in the process will have embryos that are left over, and they have, they have to make a very tough decision about what to do with these. Because there, there are only a handful of morally acceptable options. Okay? Now, just to be clear about how this works, the standard of practice in the clinic is when the couple comes in, the woman gets very high-powered hormones to enable her to release as many eggs as possible in one cycle. The record I know of so far is one woman released 60, at six zero eggs in one cycle. Okay? I mean, think that's five years' worth in one cycle. Okay, she, was a, she was a, quote, egg donor that uh, was, was very popular. Uh, but the, and then they are fertilized. Within 12 hours, they have to be fertilized. And they're fertilized in the lab. And you, you, you just you don't know how many embryos are going to be, or how many eggs will be successfully fertilized in the lab. Usually, usually not all of them. Okay? So let's say the, the average couple probably, the woman will give, you know, 10 to 15 eggs, and half of those will fertilize successfully, if they, and they may implant two, maybe three at most. If she gets pregnant with twins or triplets on the first try, chances are her childbearing days are now over. And they have a very tough set of decisions to make about five of their children that are in storage. Because embryos that are not direct, immediately implanted are frozen and put into storage. We have, we have a much easier time. We can freeze sperm and thaw it out well. We can freeze embryos and thaw them out pretty well. We can't freeze eggs and thaw eggs out very well, at least not yet. So the options for the couple are to discard them, which if our, if our theological parameters are true, then that's the moral equivalent of aborting fetuses. Okay, because, and in fact, couples who have had children through IVF will tell you that they, sent, they, have, a, they have a sense of the, the continuity between those embryos in the lab and the bouncing children that they're holding in their arms. They realize that those embryos are not clumps of cells that are just sort of floating around in a Petri dish. They are their children only at a much earlier stage of maturity. So one, they could discard them. Two, they could donate them to research, which will likely result in their discard at the end of that process. Okay. Um, they can donate them to another infertile couple, which I think is a morally acceptable option. They can, in essence, they're putting them up for adoption just much earlier in the process. And if you, if you in your, your spare time, Google, you can Google what's, what's called the Snowflake Program, which is the largest embryo adoption program in the world. It's headquartered at just in my neck of the woods in Southern California. And they have facilitated more than 500 embryo adoptions. Uh, and we view that, we view that as heroic rescues of embryos that are probably headed for the discard pile. 
And the other option, the best option, is for the, for the couple to implant them themselves. We had spoke with a couple not long ago who had had two sets of twins from IVF and two embryos left over. And they didn't, really did not want another set of twins. But they really did not want to see their children being raised by somebody else, assuming they were medically fit to implant them. And they were, and God bless them, but they had another set of twins. And last time I checked, they had six kids under the age of six in their house. So this is, that's an, be careful what you wish for. Uh, so the, those, I think the couple needs to know that those are the options. And those are decisions that they will likely have to face if the process is a success. Now, they'll also have to face, also if the process is a success, they have to face this, the, the possibility the, and probably the pressure to selectively terminate some of their pregnancies if they have too many for them to safely carry. Okay? That can be fixed easily because the, you, should, you should tell the couple only authorize the number of embryos to be implanted that you can safely carry or this number of children you want to raise so that you don't find yourself in that position. Okay? That's one that can be fixed preemptively. Now I have to tell you, I'm, ner I'm nervous ethically about the whole process of freezing embryos. I'm not thrilled about that. That's the standard of practice. I, you know, I, I would say you, you should never freeze a two-year-old regardless of whether he or she can be thought out successfully, <laughs> regardless of what other benefits might come. So I encourage couples to limit the number of eggs that are produced or that are released. And I encourage couples that every embryo that is created in the lab deserves an opportunity to be implanted. Preferably with, with the couple, but if they're not able to, then to be put up for adoption. Seems to me this is the bare minimum that couples have to know going into something as complicated as IVF. All right, now, here another area that we, we get into quite a bit is when couples, when, when one or the other, the, the, the problem, quote, problem, is isolated with one person or the other. Say the man, the man is, is not producing sperm. Or the woman is of an age where it, her eggs become suspect and vulnerable to a series of higher risk genetic abnormalities. Usually after, after 35, I think, is a little young to be automatically moving in that direction. I say once she gets past the age of 40, then she'll get strong pressure to have an egg donor instead of using her own eggs. And this is the, it raises the question about what, it, what does the Bible say about bringing third parties into the matrix of marriage when it comes to procreation? This would be sperm donors, egg donors, and womb donors or surrogates. I'm calling them donors, I think, is not quite the right term because most of the time it's not free uh, unless it's just out of the goodness of their heart. Now, in Genesis 1 and 2, the context, we've already said the context for procreation is permanent monogamous heterosexual marriage. But if you think about it, 
there were some pretty interesting out-of-the-box ways under the Mosaic law with which people procreated children, right? You had surrogacy, which granted with Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar did not turn out great. And the, the biblical writer doesn't really need to provide any commentary on that. The story is all that needed to be told. Leverett marriage was when a woman was widowed childless. The, next, the ne closest next of kin to her deceased husband was obligated to marry her and raise up a child to carry on the lineage of her deceased husband. Sounds a lot like sperm donation today. The difference is that you actually had to marry the woman in order to have a family. And it upholds that procreation takes place within marriage. Polygamy was, I'd say, allowed. Uh, to say that was sanctioned, I don't think is quite right. Uh, and then divorce is, uh, is obviously a violation of Genesis 1 and 2 that was allowed, Jesus tells us, because of their hardness of heart. So what that, so what that suggests is that there, there was some, it was, just, it was an interesting application of Genesis 1 and 2, that it functioned as an ideal at the least. Now, where we, where we get a little more clarity is when Genesis 1 and 2 is appealed to by the New Testament authors, it's considered more than just an ideal. It's considered a moral norm. In Romans 1, Paul appeals to this in, in his teaching on sexuality. 1 Timothy 2, he appeals to, Paul appeals to this for his instructions on women in the church, as, as in 1 Corinthians 11. Jesus in Matthew 19 appeals to this as well in his teaching on divorce. All of, all of those references that appeal to Genesis 1 and 2 strongly suggest that it's taken as a moral norm. Okay? And I think the... Uh, the, those, those things were allowed under the law, I think, as damage control in a fallen world, not a norm to be followed for today. What I would suggest that the, the Bible looks very skeptically about third-party interventions into the matrix of marriage, which I think suggests that sperm donors, egg donors, and womb donors, we should consider that for the most part off the table in our conversation. What I, what I just tell couples who need a sperm or an egg donor is to, I think a better option for them is to adopt embryos. Because in doing so, you get most of what is valuable to a, to a family about procreation. You get the process of pregnancy. You get childbirth. You get the bonding that takes place between the mother and child in the womb, which you don't get with traditional adoption. Now, it's, not a, not, it's not a knock on traditional adoption. But it is to say that embryo adoption has some, some merits to it that we don't often think about. And I, I think that's a better option than a sperm donor or an egg donor that leaves one person out of the equation. That couple I told you that said adoption's off the table, she was the one who also said, uh, she said, we can't have kids, and pointed at her husband and said, and it's his fault. I should have canceled the lunch right then and gone for marriage counseling for them. Uh, because he was, obviously, he was not crazy about the idea of somebody being a procreative pinch hitter for him. But I, I'm, I'm afraid what happened is she twisted his arm until he gave in. Okay. 
I know that's moving quickly. That all clear as mud? Let me raise one other. In, I think increasingly in our evangelical communities, what I, I'm seeing more and more people embrace what I would or, or move toward a Catholic reproductive ethic, which basically takes all, me, all medical options off the table. In my, in my view, this is too restrictive a view and is not I don't think is supportable by scripture or by natural law. Okay? So just so you're aware of what's out there, what some, and some people may bring this to the, you know, in, into your office. Uh, they may bring this to, you know, to dinner or over coffee, uh, a, an understanding of what's acceptable or not. So in official Catholic teaching, they make an important distinction between assisting normal sex and replacing normal sex in marriage. So any technology that replaces normal sexual relations is off the table. Okay? The reason for that is that they hold that there is an inseparable connection between the procreative and unitive, what we would call the one flesh, aspects of sexual relations in marriage. Car uh, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time um, put it this way, it's never permitted to separate these different aspects to such a degree as to positive exclude either the procreative intention or the conjugal relation. Okay. So that means, you know, IVF is completely off the table, uh, artificial insemination completely out, surrogacy, donors, all of that completely out. For different reasons. Now, I think donors are also off the table, but for a different reason than what's given here. Now here, I think the, the scripture, I think, treats the unitive element of sexual relations as a sufficient end in itself. Now, it's not the only one, but it's a sufficient one. First, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about the obligation of couples have to come together sexually regularly. The Song of Solomon, I think, treats the unitive aspects of sexual relations in marriage as a, as a, a, a sufficient end in itself. Now, it's true that part of Part of the way God designed marriage is intrinsically ordered to procreation. That's true. But it's also intrinsically ordered toward the unitive component as well. And I, in my view, that the natural law element to this is that menopause is a God-ordained natural law separation of the unitive and procreative aspects where after menopause, the procreative intention, I think, it just it, 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 there are no categories. It doesn't make any sense to have a procreative intention post-menopause. And in my view, the, the institution of menopause is, God, is God's, a God-ordained separation of the unitive and procreative aspects of sex. What Genesis 1 and 2 requires is procreation in the sphere of marriage not within every, not that every act of procreation has to be engaged in, in sexual relations. That, there, that it is possible to have procreation without sex. And it is possible to have sex without procreation. I'm, I'm not of the view that all birth control is off the table either. I think there's a, there's a place for that as well. Now, birth, birth control that is contraceptive, not 
abortifacient. Okay, everybody, we're all clear on the difference on that? Okay. So I think what, again, what the Bible, what the Bible requires is that procreation take place within the sphere of marriage. Okay, now I'm not, this is not a knock on single parents who are, who are single parents as a result of divorce or, or death, death of a spouse or some other situation. What I, what I think this calls into question is the, what's called the SMC, the single, single mothers by choice, where, where the decision, let's, just, let's put it this way, um, that, that women, women who get tired of waiting for men to get with the program, amen, decide to go have children without them. And we, we know enough now about what happens, the disadvantages that occur when kids are raised without dads in the home, that I, I would never suggest that that's an appropriate option. I did. I was, singles, I was a singles pastor for a while and had, you know, had some older women who really wanted to have children, and we encouraged them to adopt children, and they did. They adopted from overseas and rescued some of these kids from terrible situations overseas, and I think provided them really good homes. And they took pains to make sure that men were involved in the lives of their kids. I think that's a far better option than actually trying to, to have a child naturally by choice. So these, it seems to me these are some of the areas that our, our, our people are going to bring to us. Um, and I would encourage you to, you know, whenever you talk about marriage and the family, just make, you know, make some reference to infertility, so that the people that you're that you're ministering to are are aware that you're aware that not everybody fits in neatly into the married with children paradigm that we have in a lot of our churches. Amen.